I wonder if you have ever considered what your Google review score would be if people reviewed you personally. Oh, it's a scary thought, isn't it? Oof, man. So I'm not into, super into dystopian fantasies, uh, dystopian science fiction, but my friend Gabe Davis told me, hey, you need to watch this one episode of Black Mirror. I'm not recommending everything about Black Mirror, and I've only watched one episode, okay? Just the sort of pastoral caveat, all right? I don't want any of you judging me for something wrong on Black Mirror. But the episode's about this, it's called Nosedive. It's about this girl who's desperate to boast her social media score, and she gets invited to this, this wedding that's like the social event of the year. And uh, people wear these contacts, and, and as they look at you, like if I'm looking at you right now, I would be able to see your, your score, 4.2, 3.9, you know, 1.8. I don't know who that would be, but just, I'm just throwing out numbers there. And you're inter- you rate your interactions with them, right? They laughed the right way. They, you know, they dressed the right way. They did the right thing. They said the right thing. Five, one, three. Can you imagine if that happened to us? Uh, can you imagine having to live the kind of life that would get you a five all the time? It's, that's terrifying. Uh, I don't know, even want to think about what the Google score for my review would be like just based on my driving and, you know, interactions when I'm impatient or sleep deprived or whatever. Definitely not five stars on Google. And friends, this is actually what's happening in the Colossian church. There's false teachers that have come in and said, you know what, Jesus is great and he can get you so far, but if you want to be a five-star Christian, you need a little something more than Jesus. You need to observe certain fast days. You need to, uh, you need to re- observe some religious right. You need a special knowledge. And Paul is combating that in the book of Colossians. And he's saying, no, you need Jesus alone. You need Jesus' life and death, period. You want a five-star review? You can get it through Jesus alone. So, last week, we saw that Jesus is the king of creation and the sovereign ruler of everything in this, the Christ hymn that Paul gives us in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And Jesus is the king of creation, the sovereign ruler over everything, and the surprising thing is, this king of creation and sovereign ruler gives up his life. He dies to make peace By the blood of his cross, he makes peace, peace. And friends, this is the good news that the Bible is all about. We have been at war with God, enemies of God. But God took the initiative to bring us to peace. He has reconciled us by the blood of his cross. So we're, we're enemies, reconciled by Jesus' life and death, Enemies reconciled by Jesus' life and death will and must persevere to the end. I think that's what this text is all about, but I want you to personalize it. This sentence, enemies reconciled by Jesus' life and death will and must persevere to the end. Let's personalize that. Doug was an enemy of God but is now reconciled by Jesus' life and death. And because he is, he will and must persevere to the end. So insert your name in there. You, I, your name. 
was an enemy of God. But now, I'm reconciled by Jesus' life and death, and I will and must persevere to the end. So reconciliation or salvation is, is what Paul describes here in Colossians 1, 21, these three short verses Hannah read for us. Reconciliation is the good news of Jesus' life and death, resurrection, but that good news has ethical consequences for us. It's not only true, it's good. It demands something of us. So we must remember, if we're going to remember that the good news also has ethical consequences, we have to remember three things, okay? Three things. So we, must be, we remember who we once were, verse 21. We must be convinced of who, where we now stand, verse 22. And, and we must continue on the path of faith. Who we once were, where we now stand, how we must go on. And I stole that from another pastor because I couldn't think of better wording. It's so good. So you give credit to Dick Lucas. So number one, who we once were. And notice in verse 21, and you, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who the Colossian Christians once were. That's who Paul's writing to. Coloss- the Christians at Colossae, they once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Indirectly, that's us, friends. Reconciliation begins with the understanding of who we once were. Who we once were. We were alienated. The story of humanity starts in the Garden of Eden in Genesis and alienation begins in the Garden of Eden when, when we sinned in Adam and were kicked out of the Garden. And ever since, we've been wandering east of Eden. And that alienation was reinforced. And he just imagined this picture. If you go back to Genesis 3, here's this picture that God kicks humankind out of the garden of Eden in his kindness so they wouldn't eat of the, of the tree of everlasting life after they sinned. This, this enmity, this alienation is reinforced by this image of an armed angel at the entrance of the garden. One of the beginning pictures in the Bible gives us, tells us that we are at war with God. We're enemies of him. Friends, I know that's not a fun picture to think about. But it is crucial to understand if we're going to have peace with God. I can remember when I was an enemy of God. I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I went to Christian school. Um, I went to a Christian church. I even played in Christian sports leagues. That's how Christian I was. (laughs) But... That whole time, or at least some of that time, I don't know when I became a Christian. I don't know the date of my conversion, but I was, I was growing up. I, there was a time when I was an enemy of God. And, and, and the way I've talked about it, and, and, and I think God has revealed to me, is what I wanted in, in my life was the praise of man, right? Now, I played in Christian basketball league, right, in Christian school, so I was good at basketball. If I played anywhere else, I probably wouldn't have been good. But, you know, I could dunk the basketball, and I was a pretty decent athlete. And so I would get praise of people. Oh, my heart loved that so much. 
The, the other way I would get pray, you know, sought praise was to be in, in relationship with, with girls, having a girlfriend and, and pursuing women, not, not because they were creating in God's image or were or image bearers, but because I got affirmation from, from having a relationship with a girlfriend. Friends, that's, you know, these things, basketball and, and girlfriend relationships are not necessarily wrong unless you're using those things to rob God of his glory to find your identity in those things. That's my story. I, I was trying to rob, I was an enemy of God, robbing him of his glory by getting praise from men and not reflecting it back to God. Think about your story. How are you alienated from God? Ephesians 4.18 tells us that it wasn't just the Colossians, but it was also the Ephesian Christians who were alienated from God. The Gentiles were alienated from the life of God. And not just that. Ephesians 2.12 tells us from the Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Our sin has consequences. It alienates us from God and it alienates us from each other. You know, in, in counseling, uh, we see that identifying the problem is the first step. It's only the first step, but it's crucial. We were enemies of God, alienated from him by our own hostile mind and evil deeds. Those are the next two phrases Paul uses. We were alienated from God because our, our, our sin and because of God's holiness, God was too holy to look at sin, so he had to, he had to though he's long-suffering, he, he had to put it away from him. But God is too pure, too holy. And we were enemies because in our mind or our understanding, we were hostile. We were enemies. The, the word is enemy in our understanding. So there is this pervasive depravity. We're alienated from God. It affects our understanding and our minds so much that we do evil deeds. There's a pervasive depravity that plagues mankind. So men and women come into this world, Romans 5.12 tells us, as separate from God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We sin because we're sinners, right? We're, we're, we're enemies of God from our birth, even as Sean read for us this morning in Psalm 51. So we can't sugarcoat it, friends. There's none good, none righteous. Romans 3.23 tells us, there is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the payment for that sin is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But, and here's the surprise. Here's what should light us up. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how does get one get from the wages of sin is death? We've all sinned, so we all must die. How do we get from that to the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord? Verse 22 tells us. And here's the surprising part of scripture. Here's the surprising part in our text this morning. Where we now stand, where do you stand right now? Once enemies, Paul says, you, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. 
And he doesn't, he doesn't just reconcile you for no reason. He reconciles you in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. This is, this is no temporary truce in a war like we, we would find in a war. The war has ended. And God has sued for peace by giving up his life on the cross. But now. He, he is reconciled. The, the but now, the, the, the now he has reconciled this is a trumpet blast declaring reconciliation between God and man. There's peace. Peace by the blood of his cross. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 puts it this way. Okay, he says this in, in the same way to another church in Ephesus. And dear friend, he's saying this to you if you're a Christian. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So how did he do that? How, how did he reconcile us? The text says, in his body of flesh, by his death. There's just two things going on here, I think. G Paul is telling us that Jesus reconciled us by his life and by his death. This is just a, 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 a sort of a, a, a shorthand for the gospel. But I think he says in his body of flesh by his death for a reason. You remember the most famous verse in all of scripture? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So there's a link between the son coming in the flesh, what some theologians call the incarnation. So Jesus, the son of God was eternal. He came in the flesh, took on flesh, robed himself in flesh. And there's a link between that and his death on the cross. So the mission for the incarnate son of God, Jesus, has two parts. To come and live a perfect life, showing that he has authority to forgive sins. He, he came to live a perfect life, showing that he has authority to forgive sins. The second part of that mission is to die as a substitute on the cross. And we must not forget that he rose from the dead. That's a part of this, and ascended to the Father. But right now, Paul is focused on his life and his death. But here, here's what I, I want to get across to you, that his, his death alone was not enough to save us. It was enough to forgive us our sins. It was, it was enough to take care of the, 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 the sins that we had committed. But something else had to happen. Jesus had to live a life. So you think, well, what does that mean? I've always heard that was Jesus' death, you know, that saved us from sins. But Jesus also had to live. Well, think about this question. Could Jesus have come down as a 33-year-old man for one day, died, and go back to heaven. 
Was that enough? No, he came and lived 33 years on this earth as a full-grown man. Because he had to fulfill all righteousness. He was even baptized in order to to identify with, with us. He had to fulfill all righteousness in our place to reconcile us to God. So his life and death is is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It is so much more than that. He lived and died so that the rest of verse 22, he might present us holy, blameless, and above reproach. I wonder if you've ever considered yourself to be that Christian, a saint, holy. That's what the word holy means, saint. You know that you struggle with sin just like I do, and and sometimes you wonder, but if your faith is all in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and you trust in him alone and not your good works You're not trusting anything else to make you a five-star Christian. You're trusting Jesus alone. He says, you are holy. You are blameless. You once were blameworthy, and now you're blameless. You were once were guilty. You You were reproachful, doing evil deeds, hostile in your mind, and now you are without reproach. You were guilty, and now you're guiltless because of Jesus. He will not hold you guilty before the Father. I want you to notice the complete reversal from verse 21. We were alienated from God. We were hostile in mind, enemies in our mind. We were doing evil deeds. But his reconciliation was a complete reversal. We are now holy. It was our nature's as sinners that kept us east from Eden and as enemies of God. But because of the life and death of Jesus Christ, he presents us holy, without blame, and guiltless before God. We were hostile in our mind, doing evil deeds, and he, he, he presents us as blameless and above reproach. No reproach can be found in you if you trust in Jesus. So how is that possible? How is it possible that an enemy like me, who's, who's a glory-robbing, fake Christian, how is it possible for someone like me to become holy, blameless, and above reproach? How is it possible for someone like you? 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, that is God, made him that is Jesus, to be sin, who, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we all struggle with this from time to time, don't we? I know I do. Speak for myself. Because I live with me. I wouldn't even give myself a five-star review on Google. Would you give yours? I mean, am I the only one? Would you? I don't, I don't mean would you give me a five-star review, but would you give you a five-star review? I still sin, right, every day in thought, word, and deed. I still sometimes act like an enemy of God. Even, even in my mind and understanding. But is it at this point, friends, that God assures us the most? 
He says, where sin abounds, grace abounds, superabounds, it abounds all the more. Because my acceptance of God is not based on my life or my holiness, but it is based on what has been done for me on the cross. What Jesus did for me on the cross reconciles me to him. It was on a life I did not live, on a death I did not die, another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity on someone else's righteousness and death and the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. This gets messy though, doesn't it? We start to take on identities even as Christian. We're, We're tempted to identify in other things. Teenagers are... Or maybe you attempted to identify uh, in something else besides Christ, like, like your clothing, or your friend group, or your social media account. College students, aren't, aren't you tempted to identify with your grades or getting honors over identifying Christ alone? even if you got a B minus or a C. Men, are you attempted to find identity in your job or your family, having a wife and kids or not having a wife and kids? Are you tempted to identify in your social standing, your golf game, the kind of whiskey you drink? And just to be fair, women, are, are you tempted to identify in, in your work in the home or outside the home? Are you tempted to identify as a feminist over a child of God? Are you tempted to identify yourself in your family? That gets ugly too, doesn't it? You start to put all your hopes and your identity in your family, it becomes an, an idol, Y'all put all your hopes and your dreams into your job or, or, or who you are as a woman or a man. It becomes an idol. That's not who you're meant to be. You're meant to find your identity in Christ alone. So friends, a right understanding of this second point, identity in Christ alone, where we now stand is so important before we go on to the last point. We are grounded in the work that God has done for us in Christ, not our own. You want to be a five-star Christian, a 10 out of 10 Christian? Christ alone. You must place your trust. So then how must we go on? How must we go on? Because in verse 23, it sounds a lot like a condition, doesn't it? If, indeed, You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Sounds like he's saying he will present you wholly blameless and above reproach to God if you. So, we who were once alienated from God are now reconciled to God How should we live? How should we then live? New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien says this. They're continuing, that's the Colossians continuing faith, and your continuing faith 
shows how real that faith is. So the passage concludes with a condition. If it is true that the saints will persevere to the end, then it is equally true that the saints must persevere to the end. If God, some Christians have called this the perseverance of the saints. That is, those who have been reconciled to God through Christ's life and death will persevere to the end. Just think of Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. They're going to persevere to the end because they are preserved, right? I want to encourage all of those who trust in Christ's work for you that you will persevere to the end because you will be preserved by God until the end. Because the work that was done for us was done outside of us. It's not firstly done in our heart. It's firstly done on the cross. God reconciled God to man. Jesus reconciled us by the blood of his cross. So it's done for us. But because it's true that we will persevere, because we've been preserved to the end, there are ethical implications for you. You must persevere. So how does one persevere in the faith until the end? See Jesus at the last day. And Paul's going to give uh, some ethical content at the end of his letter in chapters 3 and 4. But for now, he's just, he's introducing us into how we live a Christian life, continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If you just, one page over in chapter two, verses six and seven, it says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The faith in verse 23 means the the faith as the content of Christianity. Continue in the faith. Continue in believing that Jesus reconciles you by his life, death, and resurrection. That's what he's saying. If you continue in that and you don't shift off of that gospel, you will persevere to the end. Later, and in other epistles, he says the very energy that's at work within us to do that, to persevere to the end, is given by God himself. Friends, the condition to make it to the end has been fulfilled by Jesus already. He's done this in your place. He will make it happen, and yet he says, persevere to the end. What he's saying is, live Live out the reality, the identity that is already yours in Christ Jesus. That word stable in stable and steadfast is a, it's a building term. It has to do with foundations. Uh, that, you know, when you, you know, Jesus gave us the great picture of, of building a house on the sand or building it on a rock. One's going to crumble and one's not. But, well, the rock is Jesus Christ. Stable and steadfast. Here's how you're supposed to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, having a foundation of the gospel truth. That truth stated earlier in Colossians 1, the truth of the gospel that was producing good works in them. 
not shifting from that hope of the gospel. So friends, we've heard lots of deconstruction stories. Um, it, it is basically a deconstruction story is people shifting their hope of the gospel of Je- from their gospel of Jesus Christ to something else. And Paul is telling the Colossians, don't do that. Dear church, Christian friend, don't shift your hope from anything but the life death of Jesus Christ. So one deconstruction story, and this will close us out. One deconstruction story. Christian deconstruction is when someone who at one point believed they were converted Christian tears down the foundations of their conversion and, and puts something else in its place. So this deconstruction story is about a man who went from rags to riches. He had it all. He had political power. He was a dynamic leader. He had previously been a soldier. He was an accomplished poet. And he believed that God had put him in this place. He even publicly worshipped and acknowledged God as a savior. But he, he began to live like an unbeliever. He would still go to church. He would still say the right words. He would, but in his mind, he lived like God wasn't there. He was slightly shifting his hope. He ended up committing adultery with the wife of one of his bodyguards. And then the wife got pregnant, so he had, to, he had to do something about that. So what did he choose to do? He chose to kill the bodyguard. You may have guessed it already. That's King David. That's the, who God says is a man after his own heart. He was, he was the one that was, that was the great king, pointing to the greater king, Jesus, as the true ruler of God's people. He did these things. Committed murder, adultery, and murder. Did he continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of, that was in him by God? Friends, God was not done with David. And that's why we should be very hopeful in some of these deconversion stories that he, he, he may not be done with some of these people. He confronted David by his own prophet speaking his word, and David repented and turned to God for salvation. I didn't ask Sean to read Psalm 51, but it was perfect. That's exactly what happened. He, he got his hope slightly off, and he shifted back. You and you alone have done this evil in my sight, and you and you alone can forgive me. So the hope of the gospel is something done outside of us at the cross, but it's something done for us. And God is doing something in us. And we know that we have been reconciled as we turn to him again and again from our sin to God's reconciling love. Friends, in 1914, the world was at war over the assassination of a duke. In Austria, Hungary, Germany were on one side, and Britain and France and some other countries were on another side. And in Christmas of 1914, there was a truce. The Pope asked for a truce, but the powers of be said, no, we're not going to officially have a truce. It's only a couple months into the war. We want the war efforts to continue. But on Christmas Eve, 1914, Soldiers laid down their arms, started singing Christmas hymns. And, and the Brits would sing one of their carols, and then the Germans would sing one of theirs. And then finally, the Brits started to sing, Oh, come, all ye faithful. 
And the Germans join in. And there's, there's journal entries about this. And one guy says, what a fascinating thing. What an extraordinary thing that two enemies at war would start singing the same Christmas carol. And they're singing about Christ the Lord. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. So here's a baby who came to die for the sins of humanity, who's uniting soldiers in a song during a war that would kill 15 million people. And, and one commentator on this says, the Christmas truce in 1914 may have been a one-off in the conflict. The fact that it remains so widely commemorated speaks to the fact that at its heart, it symbolizes a very human desire for peace, no matter how fleeting. Friends, in the death of Christ, God has won a lasting peace. He has laid down his arms, his weapons against you by sending his son to the cross so that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach because Jesus Christ is holy, blameless, and above reproach. You want a five-star rating? Trust in Jesus and him alone. Let's pray. So we look to you, our great Christ, as the only one who can reconcile us to God. God, as we have sung and read and, and heard in the preaching of your word and, and will see in the ordinances that you at a great cost have done this. I pray for increased faith and continuance in our faith as a people that you might get glory that we might be assured of your love for us in Christ Jesus, that you have made peace by the blood of your cross. Amen. Thank you, Doug. Um, we're going to move into a time of confession now. Uh, when we confess our sins before God, what we are doing is we are admitting um, something to God that he already knows. We're acknowledging with God 